Chief Lee, how are you doing today? Hey, good afternoon, John. How are you? You're doing good. Great, thanks. And thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, I really appreciate it. So I uh, want to dive right into this. You've now been in role over a year as the uh, Chief Criminal Division of IRS, and obviously uh, also 25 plus years at IRS. Most of us in the AML community are obviously very familiar with the agency and the great work that you folks do. But for those that may not or might be new to the BSA AML space, uh, what, what, from your perspective, what do folks need to know about IRS CI? Yeah, I pre appreciate it, uh, John, and uh, appreciate you giving me the opportunity to speak a little bit today. Um, give you the quick version about IRS CI and our uh, mission in general is to serve the American public by investigating criminal tax violations. Um, that's my priority, but we also investigate a lot of other related financial crimes, you know, namely money laundering, bank secrecy, national security air, uh, issues. Um, spend a lot of time in those areas as well, but my highest priority is to enforce the country's tax laws. We, uh, I like to tell people that we play a significant deterrent role within the service. And, and, and what that deterrent role is, is people need to know there's a consequence for being willfully non-compliant. And that consequence is jail time, which is uh, far different than paying a fine to resolve an issue. And I think a couple other notes, it's important to note we're the only agency authorized to investigate federal tax violations, but equally important, um, we're the only agency that, federal agency that dedicates 100% of their time to financial investigations. You know, so therefore, we really protect the overall integrity of the financial system, which makes us incredibly unique. Um, maybe the last couple points to, for, your, for your audience. 75% of my time is spent on tax or tax-related crimes, 12% on narcotics, uh, another 12% in pure money laundering. Um, you know, our conviction rate remains uh, amongst the highest in federal law enforcement, uh, on average about 90%. Uh, of the time um, we get a conviction, simply suggesting that if you get in the crosshairs of an IRS CI special agent, it's highly likely you're going to jail. Yeah, you know, the conviction rate is really compelling, obviously, the percentages. The other thing that I'm interested in, besides a lot of these different crimes that you, do, that you folks do investigate, um, is the sources for information. The reason I mention that is because you know, there's been debate, as you well know, uh, in Washington for the past couple of years, maybe longer, about the value of Bank Secrecy Act data. Now, I know there's other data clearly that you folks utilize, but I was um, I was definitely caught by um, the 2021 report, annual report that was just issued, where it lists the investigative sources that you folks use uh, to investigate your crimes, obviously. And I see that 13% of that comes from FinCEN, uh, internally, about 20%, where the civil or the criminal side of IRS, and 27% comes from a U.S. attorney's offices and 31% federal agencies. So just high level, the value proposition of both data and information. Obviously, I, I think your predecessors, and you certainly have said this as well, that BSA data is so, is so essential. But to the private sector that files this information, give us a sense of the import of you know, clear and accurate information filing? Yeah, that's a great question. And when I hear you ask the question, I think of partnerships 
and relationships, um, public-private partnerships and relationships. The work is critical. Um, you know, the, the, the way I'd respond to that, John, is, you know, we're involved in, you know, 92 or so uh, SAR review teams nationwide. You know, they meet regularly, typically monthly, to review SARs in their area. And, you know, often these uh, SAR review teams, you know, they host meetings with uh, local uh, AML compliance professionals in order to foster those relationships. I highly encourage it. Um, it gives, it puts everybody in the same room and they can discuss regional issues and emerging trends. And it's interesting you bring that up about the 13%. Um, in the past three, this is how, this is why that data is so important. In the past three fiscal years, um, each year, approximately 13% of all of our investigations initiated are generated strictly from BSA data. Now, that's, that's tax and money laundering, you know, cases alike. 13% comes from BSA data. Um, and that, that's a huge, it, I mean, it's a huge, it's a major data set investigations we pursue. And, but, but more importantly, in every investigation, I can't think of an investigation that we would work that we wouldn't look at BSA data. The 13% is just cases directly generated from there. And to give you just a slight, some slight context, you know, the IRS is about 80,000 employees. Um, only about 7% of our inventory, our investigations initiated each year come from the rest of the enterprise. Wow. So that, that's a clear indication how important, you know, BSA data is, uh, you know, to our agents, uh, to our inventory, it's a wealth of information. You know, in the uh, in the 2021 report, it talks about how much tax fraud was identified, and it's uh, close to 2.2 billion dollars, and other financial crime, over 8 billion dollars. So obviously, when you folks can recover funds, uh, that becomes obviously uh, relevant in, the, in these days of trying to figure out, you know, uh, funding for the government and funding for programs and that sort of thing. So there, there must be some, some major satisfaction, not only in doing a prosecution, but when you can either recover or seize funds, uh, uh, you know, after a case, that, that that funding, that those dollars go to a whole host of things that are important to making the government and the economy uh, move. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great point too. And, you know, obviously we use our money laundering statutes and our money laundering expertise, you know, to, uh, uh, to not only seize ill gotten gains, um, you know, which goes over into our T-off account, but we also work a lot of investigations where we recover, where we seize money and then that money gets returned to actual victims you know, of a lot of these crimes. So a huge part of our strategy, uh, especially on the money laundering side of the house and our Title 18 statutes that we work revolve around uh, seizures. I mean, because right. to be quite frank with you, a lot of these criminal enterprises, I mean, I, you know, you take away their money, um, you know, that really kind of uh, cuts the head off the snake, so to say. No, that's, yeah, that makes so much sense. And I should just tell the folks that are listening, to take a look at the report because there's some uh, excellent uh, case studies from the various field offices, whether they be on significant forfeitures or cases. And I think that helps sort of bring to light the, uh, the value proposition of what, of what you and your staff are doing. You know, we're still in the pandemic, unfortunately. Uh, we hope we see the light 
the end of the proverbial tunnel, but of course, you know, there's more challenges. But um, obviously, the economy was struggling. Congress decided uh, to 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 fund and help those that were, you know, out of work. Uh, so the PPP program uh, uh, was created. I know from talking to some of my banker friends that. When this happened, you know, it was uh, parts of the Treasury Department rightly said, hey, we got to get this money out quickly. Let's, you know, let's be real efficient. Some of the bankers, at least the folks that I deal with that are in compliance, that are in uh, financial crime prevention said, eh, time out, guys. We'll do this. We agree with you, the goal, but we have a feeling there's going to be a lot of fraud. And unfortunately, they were right. I'm sure your folks saw the same thing. I know that's something you, you, you still deal with and your staffs deal with. Give us a sense, not of the scope, because I know that changes, uh, but the challenges of dealing with, with COVID fraud. Now, unfortunately, you know, I've, I've talked to other law enforcement folks. Whenever there's a problem, hurricanes, you know, you name it, you know, earthquakes, unfortunately, criminals come out of the woodwork. So this is not endemic necessarily to the pandemic, if I can be silly with wordplay there but obviously it it was it was something that the bankers understood was going to happen did happen i know they're working with your colleagues they're working with your staff to figure it all out give us a sense of the scope of covid fraud that you're that you guys have been dealing with for the past couple of years yeah great question i get that a lot um you know it's a hard topic to avoid given the past 20 months right uh, these are some of the most sickening crimes um uh amongst some of the most sick and, sickening crimes i see because you know a lot of the the work and and time spent the process a lot of these loans could be time spent helping people that really need the support and the assistance so um yeah 20 months our invest our investigators our special agents have really continued to investigate since the beginning they haven't stopped um but they are investigating with compassion you know, due to the fact that there are emotional hardships uh, out there that can't sure. be overlooked. Right. Our uh, our special agent position is a field job, you know, by nature. They got to be out there to, to work investigations. They got to be out there conducting interviews, interacting with people, gathering evidence. And they should be. You know, lots expected of our law enforcement officers uh, because the folks committing the crimes are in full force. So my division, IRSCI, has been involved in all forms of COVID-related fraud since the beginning. Now, you mentioned the PPP loans. They have dominated the space for us. However, um, we have investigations going on in all COVID fraud-related areas. And, uh, you know, just to kind of summarize, give some context there, you, know, you got the Paycheck Protection Program. Right. Mm -hmm. You got the Economic Injury Disaster Loans. We see a lot of fraud there. You got the Economic Impact Payments, uh, a lot of, of fraud, and, and it's more of like an identity theft crime. You got the Personal Protected Equipment. Um, that's like the counterfeit PPE. And then you've got uh, payroll tax credits. You've got state unemployment benefits. And I would even throw in, you know, the newer advanced child uh, care credit as well into the COVID loans or COVID wow. fraud. But the majority is uh, PPP. The majority is all money laundering. But keep in mind that tax charges are present in some cases. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly your audience has heard that money laundering is tax evasion and progress. Right. Um, my, my division uh, and me, I'll, I'll, uh, I'm very proud of our efforts in the COVID fraud uh, area where we've initiated just in fiscal year uh, 21 alone. Um, 
384 federal COVID fraud cases. We've seen 206 indictments. And there's not a week that goes by where I'm not seeing an indictment related to COVID fraud. And I think another interesting fact is, um, you know, through the end of the fiscal year, uh, the average sentence imposed on the third, we have, we have about 36 COVID fraud cases that actually made it to sentencing. Um, and the average sentence is three years, just simply demonstrating, you know, the judges don't take it lightly. Um, and that kind of gives you some context of the, the value that we bring to the table regarding COVID fraud. I know just in July uh, of this year, uh, a gentleman was sentenced in uh, Texas to 135 months, nine years and three months. The judges don't take it lightly. I'm just continuing to stress what the most significant COVID cases, and more importantly, uh, the timely prosecutions cases is critical so we can have a huge deterrent impact uh, right now. You know, that, that's great. And, you, and IRS does a great job, not just at CI, but you folks do a great job of messaging uh, things, you know, help consumers during tax reporting time or be careful during the holidays. But when you uh, complete some of these cases, and people are sentenced, um, you know, that information goes out. So I would also recommend uh, to those that are listening to sign up for the various IRS, uh, I'll call them newsletters, because I'm an old guy, but the, the messaging <laughs> that goes out from, from IRS, because I think that really brings home both the scope of what you folks cover, but also that it's very successful. So I think that's, that's important. And, and it's there, you know, it's, it's being communicated. So there's no... There's no way that uh, somebody in our space can say, well, I wasn't aware that IRS does X because that information is, is handy and it's there. So and another part of this that makes it, um, that I always want to stress is that some people don't realize that IRS has an international component. You know, obviously offshore tax evasion is a major issue, but in addition to that, and feel free to talk about that as well, but, but the, inter the international scope of, what some of your agents do. I think that's, that's important because I think in some cases, it used to be like this with the FBI. People didn't realize the FBI had agents overseas, but you, some of your agents do, do work uh, overseas. Give us a sense of, of how, that, how, how that works. Yeah, you know, uh, another great question. Yeah, we're, um, we, we refer to our agents overseas as attachés. I think the Bureau right. refers to them as, as uh, legats. Um, same difference. Uh, we have about 22 people uh, at any given time permanently stationed overseas and in 11 um, different posts. You know, there really are liaisons. Uh, and, well, and each one of those posts cover a, a region, you know, of the world. Um, and they just help, you know, with our um, foreign national counterparts. You know, they, uh, they, they help us with the exchange of information. And, you know, um, one thing I think of, so we're, we, we do, we do a lot in the international arena, but there's, there's one thing that your, your audience is probably familiar with. You know, we just, uh, hit our three-year anniversary with the J5, the Joint Chiefs of Global Tax Enforcement. Right. And you know, for those that might not know, you know, that's where, you know, my counterparts, you know, the criminal tax authorities overseas, and we call it the J5 because it's my counterparts in Australia, Canada, the Netherlands, and the UK, you know, like-minded tax authorities right. get together, uh, work collaboratively, and hence why the J5 was formed. And, you know, one of the things that I, 
I uh, and there's a public-private partnership piece to this too. And I, I, I mean, I love this. So it's a unique approach, you know, in our international efforts. Um, we refer to it as the challenge. And think of it like this: we just completed our third chapter of the challenge, and um, this third challenge uh, uh, revolves around the fintech industry and cryptocurrency. And the value can't be overstated because what happens is we, we essentially lock uh, people in a room, you know, for 24 hours um, from each country, uh, public private partners, you know, varying technical skill sets. We, we, we figuratively lock them in a room. Um, we have them bring real data uh, from a variety of open um open source investigative sources available to, to each country and we right. tell them to produce results and that's exactly what they do so at the end of a challenge um each country walks away with new investigative leads you know the work being done in this space you know, makes the world much smaller for criminals and i'm i'm extremely confident to say to you right now that there are operational leads um that we have and are actively working right now that we would not have without that J5 partnership and the challenge. And that all stems from our uh, our international partnerships in general. That's great. Um, shifting a little bit to the non-tax crimes, one of the things that struck struck me in the report among the many is that you know when we look at financial crime, we don't always focus on corruption, although corruption's sort of the key to all the crimes, right? I mean, it's always, but the focus on public corruption that the IRS has, and that's obviously in part uh, because it's a violation of, uh, or the misuse of, uh, of taxpayer dollars, right? So corruption by public officials, that's what happens. They're getting kickbacks or embezzling extortion. Talk a little bit about that. Is that the type of crime that typically needs undercover work? I know you guys have undercover agents. Or is it a combination of things? And and obviously there's, you know, if you violate the public trust, most statutes will, uh, you know, give you pretty heavy jail time for doing that. And, and obviously civil fines as well. But talk a little bit about corruption and by public officials or government officials, whether they be U.S. or, or foreign, because I know that's part of uh, part of your environment as well. Yeah, it's another great question. I, I um you know, I go back to so, you know, 75% of my time is tax or tax related, you know, type crimes. And a lot of this public corruption falls into that tax related type of crime, because, mm -hmm. you know, if you think about it, um, most federal crimes, and I, you know, I highlight most, not all, but most federal crimes, other than random acts of violence occur to make money, right? right. So as a result, we can work and get involved in any case from a financial aspect. We simply have to be selective due to the resources we have. Um, so when it comes to, so I can talk about public corruption, I could talk about any uh, any type of crime, whether it's a corruption charge or bribery charge, you know, uh, they're, they're, it, greed takes over. Um, and that's why they're um, involved in these crimes. And so we, yes, we get involved. Uh, we, we are uh, around the country on a lot of the public corruption squads over at the Bureau. Um, it's, uh, it's a significant part of my program priority areas. Because again, 
you know, we we need to have a balanced program to send a deterrent message. You know, you can't always just go after the little guy. You got to show you there's got to be a balance, right. you know, um, you know, across all our pri- uh, program priority areas. So people can see, hey, if, if that person can go to jail for that, so can I. And, and, and you hit the nail on the head. Uh, um, you know, all these crimes of greed, you know, what, nobody's reporting that. Uh, income on a tax return and right. that's why there's where there, there's a huge value in tax charges there because all that's income um from a narcotics dealer i mean the money they're generating from selling dope that's income to them and so that's why you know we play a very unique role um you know with our federal law enforcement um brothers and sisters and uh we add significant value you know, uh, from a financial standpoint to all these investigations, because money, again, it's not a random act of violence. Money really just ties all the cases together. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. The um, Every time there's a, and you guys aren't tied to administrations per se, so it's not really relevant from that perspective, but every time there's a new, there's a shift in any sort of leadership, the um, the financial sector sort of looks and says, What's going to be the focus on white collar crime? And it seems to me that you're, you guys are always focused on that. If it's corporate fraud, uh, you know, if tax evasion, it doesn't matter. So, it, you're, you, you know, the, the, what, you, what you folks do, uh, the investigations you have, uh, the criminals that you go after, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to change. Uh, I, I don't mean ch- it can't change in terms of focus because, you know, cyber maybe deserves a different look than it did before, but just in general. So I guess, how do you look at white collar crime? This is more of an esoteric question, because like I said, I've been in this space for a long time. And it seems to me that the perception is always that white collar criminals get slapped on the wrist. That's not accurate. Obviously, some go to jail. There's there's very dramatic examples of that. And you point out a lot of people are doing pretty pretty heavy jail time based on the uh, violations of the tax laws. But if somebody were to say to you, you know, at a, <laughs> at a picnic or something, Hey Jim, you know, yeah, you guys are doing all this, but are you really going after uh, the white collar criminals? I'm not going to answer for you, but it seems like that's something that's always, you, you don't think of it like that. You think of it wherever the criminal is, we're going to go after hit him or her. Right. No, John, that that's exactly right. And um, it's interesting because, you know, going back to when I first kind of opened up, you know, 100% of our time are, are, are spent on financial investigations. And that's where that uh, 90% conviction rate comes in. I'll right, say right. that, you know, our average, you know, um, uh, in fiscal year 21, the full year, our average sentence on financial investigations in general, that's just everything, is about 43 months, wow. um, yeah. you know, which is significant jail time. You sure. know, now, granted, that, that's, that's the average, but that's pretty consistent, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, I, I would say at least uh, for the past five fiscal years, it's in that 40, you know, month range. So there are significant sentences for financial crimes. Now, great. Again, you do have some, you know, that, that don't. And that and every agent that you talk to will give you that one war story where they work really hard and somebody probably deserved, well, definitely deserved jail time. And, right. you know, the judge right. didn't, um, uh, didn't give it. But uh, on average, it's 40 you know, plus months. So it's significant. And, and again, I approach it uh, and my division approaches it as I've got to create deterrence. We are the backbones. IRSCI is the backbone, backbone of the service of the IRS. 
Um, we have to demonstrate to folks that there's a, you know, for, there's a consequence for being willfully non-compliant. Again, it's jail time. And, you know, my guys do, and guys and gals, uh, professionals, they do a, an incredible job. Uh, their, their work ethic is second to none. And, um, you know, they're passionate about the mission. Right. Uh, you know, when you think about it, you know, 96% of the country's revenue flows through the service, right? And, you know, to, to, to have a voluntary system, there's got to be a deterrent for those that don't comply with the voluntary system, right? right. And that's what we do. We, we, we give that uh, to the American public. That's uh, the value that we give. That's our relevance within the service. No, and, that, and, and that's obviously well appreciated by not just those of us in the financial sector. The, uh, the last category of things I want to cover uh, with you is cyber. We, we, we referenced it before. Obviously, um, cybersecurity is on everybody's mind. There's all sorts of ways in which uh, funds get uh, access that didn't weren't a challenge to, you know, 20 years ago. In your report, it talks about a whole host of things, but a couple of things jumped out at me. One is that um, you are planning to launch what you're calling an advanced collaboration and data center in the Northern Virginia area in 2022, which would bring together people from across the government to work uh, on, you know, tax and financial systems, which I think is great. Uh, so I, I think obviously you continue to grow the cyber response but I also noticed that when we talk about cryptocurrency, that same report reflects 3.5 billion in cryptocurrency was seized. Um, yep. And, you know, I, I know crypto is, we're, we're all still trying to figure out and navigate what it is and what it's not. Uh, but obviously that's a space that uh, IRSCI has been engaged in for a couple of years. Give, give us your take on, on crypto in general. Obviously there's mixed messages and I don't mean this in a, in a pejorative way, from the government, you know, you have um, Treasury Secretary Yellen saying she's concerned, but, you know, other and, and others saying similar things, but we have to really need to figure it out. Um, but it's getting more and more play. Um, and, and I, you know, obviously, unfortunately, it can be used and it has been used. And you guys have shown that in your cases uh, to, uh, to, to move illicit funds for a whole host of things. There's a report, there's a part of your report talks about a Ukrainian uh, cyber criminal who uh, was, de de you know, de decrypting all sorts of information on the dark web and passing that on uh, to help facilitate ransomware and getting paid in crypto. So, you know, I know we can't, we could probably do two hours on crypto, but give us your sense Easily. of where, where that's going and, and sort of what, what the general focus is from your staff. Yeah, let me, that's a great question. And I know uh, that, that easily is a two-hour conversation. I, I've seen a significant growth and focus on cyber crimes. And I call it cyber crimes. Crypto is just one aspect of a sure. cyber crime, right? right? But as evidenced in the in the report, that sees value of $3.5 in crypto. That accounted for about 93% of all our seizures. I mean, that, that should suggest to folks that it's yeah. not as anonymous as people think. Um, right. I do expect that trend to continue as we move, you know, here into fiscal year 22. And I say that because of something that you just mentioned. It's I, we do have plans to launch this collaboration center, and you know, in uh, in, in in spring of 2022. And in general, it's, it's like a centralized hub for cyber training and tools and collaborative efforts, you know, associated with cyber challenges in general. Crypto being one of them. And it's more than just a physical structure, John. Um, 
I, I would say it's, it's more like a task force model approach. That's where we're bringing the subject matter experts, cyber agents, contractors, treasury analysts, other IRS business units, uh, public-private partnership. We're going to put them you know, at the center, equip them with the expensive tools that it takes to tackle the most notable cyber challenges. And this isn't new. Right. For the past four or five years, we've been modeling this on a much uh, smaller scale out of our D.C. operations field office. We've seen great successes. And I'm sure, you know, in the crypto area with, you know, a lot of notable, notable cases that welcome the video case and largest dark web marketplace for child exploitation. We took down Bitcoin Hamas revolved around cryptocurrency fundraising for several terrorist organizations. We did a Silk Road seizure of one billion dollars with the with the B, um, you know, using this model and more. And and the vision is the center, you know, can be can be replicated to help all special agents around the country in any type of investigation, you know, where they have a cyber related challenge, you know, which 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 leads right to the crypto challenges that you are that, sure. that, you know that you mentioned. Yeah, it's it's going to continue to to be that challenge. And to your point, yeah, it's the the notion that it's completely anonymous. So many people they just they just read headlines. You know, they don't yeah. they don't try to yeah. do what one of the your guiding principles of your agency: master your craft. You know, continuous learning right. as you talk about it. I like that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I think that's such an important principle, and people should take when you take a look at the report, you'll see the message from Jim, message from the chief that reiterates the. Uh, the guiding principles of IRSCI. Let me get you out of here on this. And again, so appreciate the time today. I know you got a lot on your plate. Um, things don't work perfectly in terms of uh, calendar years, but you know, we'll do what everybody else does. We're finishing up on 2021. We obviously all hope that 2022 will will improve the uh, you know both in the the economics, but also the medical environments that we've been under. Uh, but what do you see as continued or maybe new challenges uh, for financial crime prevention folks, whether they be your your agents or uh, partners from the uh, private sector? What, what do you think the biggest challenges may, might be in 2022? I think uh, challenges, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of them, sir, John. Uh, geez, uh, again, that's another two-hour conversation. But, sure. you know, this virtual sure. currency, cryptocurrency, it's really, it's a continuing trending threat uh, or challenge affecting, you know, AML efforts um, that I see um, tracking virtual, you know, currency is going to be, uh, you know, the name of the game in both the money laundering world and the tax world. You know, I think, you know, kind of moving into 2022, what's important to me, I, I've always valued, and when I say I, I mean, my division has always valued public-private partnerships. Um, we're going to continue to put significant emphasis there because it's proven um, uh, that these critical relationships, uh, you know, are a pathway to success. I would say, uh, you know, we touched on international a little bit. Right. I would just uh, suggest that everybody be on the lookout for some operational announcements regarding our J5 partnership and other international efforts as well. But definitely the J5 partnership. I'm, I'm briefed regularly on those operations. And, and I expect a number of outward-facing uh, uh, announcements, you know, in the next you know quarter or two, and you know what, something I forgot to mention about the J5. Um, that J5 doesn't operate in a vacuum. I mentioned right. the five countries that we talked to, but you know, in addition to sharing <laughs> your information amongst each other, especially in the, around professional enablers and crypto, we share 
information where appropriate with other countries as well. So if we don't operate in a vacuum and we don't just work tax, it's it's all types of financial crime. So syndicated conservation easements is abusive tax scheme, maybe for another day, sir. Crypto cases will continue to be uh, looked at in the tax money laundering area. Um, I think, John, in my very humble opinion, if I may, the government can make no better investment than to invest in IRSCI because again, not only do we write deterrence and compliance within the tax system, but because we spend 100% of that time on financial crimes, right. you know, we really create that deterrence um, and protect integrity of the financial system. So you, you mentioned, I, I think maybe in closing, if you give me another, humor me for one more second. Sure, you go mentioned ahead. The, the, the communications and the publicity. You know, we're going to continue to do that. Last spring, you know, we uh, took a, a step into the social media world, you know, the first time with Twitter. You know, so look, plug for Twitter, follow us, you know, at the at symbol, IRS underscore CI. And to, to your audience, listen, please know, you know, you're not any more likely to be audited if you simply follow us on Twitter. So check it out. <laughs> Jim, that, that's great. Uh, I say here, here to that. I've been following you guys on Twitter for a long time. Uh, I'll, I'll end with this right from your report, right from your column in the report. You say this, today's criminals think we cannot catch them. But as evidenced by some of the great casework in this report, it is clear we can. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. Thanks so much for what you do uh, for the financial community, but also for society in general. Thanks for taking the time with me. Have a great holiday, and we'll talk again. Likewise, John. Thanks, and stay safe.